we talk about carbon zero, and, and actually, we need to do better than that. Hello, I'm your host, James, and welcome to All About Energy, a podcast made in association with the Centre for Energy Ethics at the University of St. Andrews. Now, every episode, we go through some of the latest energy news from around the world before heading into an interview with an expert from the world of energy. Once again, I am delighted to introduce my co-host for the third time in a row, establishing herself as quite a regular presence now on the podcast, PhD student from the University of St. Andrews and member of the Centre for Energy Ethics, Anna Rauter. Anna, how are you doing? I'm great. It's great to be back once again. Yeah, thanks for joining us again this week. You're basically a pro at this stage. Yeah, I feel like a regular. Anna, do you want to start us off with the news this week? Uh, It's actually been really hard to pick energy news because there have been so many interesting things in the world of energy going on. But the news piece that has attracted my attention the most has been the um, media coverage of a study Uh, a UK-based Cambridge Sustainability Commission study that talks about the polluter elite, this concept of a polluter elite. And that study was tasked with finding the most effective ways to tackle carbon emissions. And what they say is that this polluter elite, so the wealthiest 1% and the wealthiest 5% who contribute about 50% of the emissions in the world, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, that is, that those people should drive less, particularly SUVs, and they also should fly less. The lead author of this report, Professor Peter Newell, who's actually based at, the, at Sussex University, told the BBC, who uh, that was the first article I read on the topic, that the, the polluter elite is the people who fly the most and the, drive the biggest cars and live in the biggest homes. It's the rich people. So this uh, Professor Peter Newell referred particularly often to rich people in the interview. And rather than really going into the details of this study more, I want to disentangle the word polluter elite. And actually, James, um, I I was so fascinated by the term and and the study that I asked people on my social media uh, in a number of polls what they thought about it. The first question that I asked was, do you feel that you belong to the polluter elite? James, what do you think? Do you belong to the polluter elite? I actually answered this question on your poll, probably. I mean, I'm from New Zealand, living in the UK, and I I don't fly home regularly, but those flights are uh, significant. So I I, I suppose that that one flight equates to a a lot of smaller flying. Interestingly, others who also voted on that poll, they said 42% said they do belong to the polluter elite and 58% said no. Now, the next question that I asked people was uh, about their flying habits. If they would continue traveling post-pandemic or if they were going to reduce their flying. 68% said no way, that they needed a holiday and that they wouldn't change their flying habits. 32% said they would fly less often. What was interesting to me is in the polls, you can look at who answered. And what was interesting to me was that quite a few people who said that they did not consider themselves part of the polluter elite also said that they would not change their flying habits. The next thing I did was I shared some insights into my own behaviors. I I said that I use a car, but I mostly carpool, that in our home we have an oil heating, but we also have solar panels to heat our water. 
that I mostly eat local food, but that I work digitally and, and so on and so forth. So I, I outlined some of the things that I think I do well and some things that I think I could improve on. And then I asked people if they thought I was part of the polluter elite. James, what do you think? Am I a polluter elite? I think if I am, then you are. Fair. I think that's really fair. In terms of the poll, 71% of the people said that they did think I was a polluter elite. And again, interestingly, those who said that I am part of the polluter elite said about themselves previously that they are not. Qu quite a few of them, actually. You know, admittedly, this is not a full and fair study. But what my observation is that people generally don't consider themselves to be part of an elite, but may more easily consider others to be elites or even, you know, polluter elites. So there seems to be quite a lot of confusion around this term elite or who the 1% or who the 5%, who exactly that is. I mean, it's really interesting because, yeah, that, that top 1%, the top 5% is not exactly clear on who that includes. I mean, it's a, it's a really easy thing to opt out of by looking around you and saying, well, there are plenty of people who are, earn more money, drive more, fly more than I do. So I'm clearly not part of this. But on a global scale, most of us uh, in the, and I mean, very much scare quotes around this Western world, do fly more than the rest of much of the rest of the world we do drive more than much of the rest of the world so on a worldwide scale i i think it would be quite hard not to be part of that five percent if you are educated and um part of western society hmm. yeah i think i think one of the problems with with concepts like this polluter elite that's cited in this in the study and in the, in the article is that it, it really isn't defined well and it can be quite misleading uh, to me, a report like this puts responsibility on this sort of phantom-like group of people who most people don't really know much about. Granted, the report seems to suggest that we all must contribute to climate mitigation, so everybody. But I'm not sure the way forward is to single out a group of people by making them sound rich, elitist, and exclusive. Yeah, even the use of, of rich in the interview with the BBC is problematic because it makes it really hard to self-identify with. I mean, a lot of this reminds me of the debate around the concept of privilege that's been happening on social media, but in media generally of the last half a decade in particular to do with either gender-based privilege or racial-based privilege, in that it can be hard for individuals to identify their own privileges uh, because it requires a level of self-reflection and uh, acknowledgement of there are some ways in which you're better off than than others. And that can feel like it's um, reducing your own problems, your own challenges that you have to face. So it, it is this problem that we've had to wrestle with before. And I, I don't necessarily think that a term like polluter elites is helpful for people to kind of self-identify with. Well, actually, James, it's interesting that you use the word self-identify because we know that most people don't self-identify as elites. It's mostly a, a term that's used descriptively. Now, you may know that I also use this term in my research. I refer to energy elites in my work, and I try to use it in a non-judgmental and in an apolitical and analytical way. I'm also mindful of the history of the word, 
During the 17th century and 18th century, which in Europe was a time of revolutions, the term was used to describe those who got a, a position of authority, but based on merit, by being elected. This term, elite, was used to contrast to royals and aristocrats who were born into privilege. So, so it's actually sort of a, a sort of revolutionary term in the sense that it was trying to make a political point about the sort of unfairness of being born into position rather than achieving it yourself. Over the centuries, with different political and economic contexts, the use of the word has changed. Now it is often, particularly by the media, used together with negative connotations. In my work, I actually try to demystify this notion of elites. I show that energy elites, this is a term I use to describe the leaders and experts of energy companies in Norway, these energy elites are very much confronted too with the uncertainties of energy dilemmas. Many of the elites that I encounter do try to be proactive about their emissions. During my fieldwork in Norway, for example, about a third of the people that I worked with switched from their jobs in hydrocarbons, in oil and gas, to work in renewables. And many of them were really interested to push for change, professionally but also privately. So for my part, I don't think the best way to solve our climate and energy dilemmas is to single out anyone and expect them to listen to that and, and change accordingly. Don't get me wrong, I think studies like these are important and eye-opening, but researchers who do them also have to think about the best way to communicate these things. Even on my social media, it was not easy for me to hear that most of the people thought that I was a polluter. Uh, whilst it has made me further reflect on my own practices, I'm not convinced it's generally the best way to get people engaged, to change their behaviors, and to think about how to build sustainable energy futures for us all. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, a lot of the problems that science is having right now, I think, can be traced back to that inability to communicate or reluctance to communicate adequately with the wider public. And I think just the vocabulary used in this study, uh, and then again in the BBC interview by the uh, researchers, kind of indicates that that's still an issue that needs to be addressed, I think, in order to more effectively bring together the discourses that exist within the science community and in the wider general public. Yeah, definitely, James. I think I think you're spot on there. As I said before, there was so many interesting energy news to report on for this episode. And I know you have a really interesting study lined up from the United Nations. Do you want to share that with me and, and our listeners? Absolutely, absolutely. For my news piece this week, I'm going to go a little depressing. Oh, no. <laughs> Remember how earlier in 2020 there were all those news stories about how the COVID-19 lockdowns were having a positive effect on the environment and reducing greenhouse gas emissions? Yeah, I remember. I remember putting up a blog post about this as well. I was comparing the climate crisis with the COVID crisis and was being really hopeful that COVID could teach us something about the way we tackle climate change in the future. Well, we can absolutely link that blog post in the episode page up on the Energy Ethics website. But unfortunately, according to the most recent State of the Climate report from the WMO, published on the 20th of April... This reduction in greenhouse gas emissions is not reflected in their climate data. So the WMO is the World Meteorological Organization, and it's a specialized agency of the United Nations responsible for promoting international cooperation on atmospheric science, climatology, hydrology, and geophysics. 
They use what they call global climate indicators to reveal the ways in which the climate is changing and provide a broad view of the climate at a global scale. Obviously, climate is, is a really complicated system. It's not all about temperature, it's not all about gases, and it's going to change on an annual basis. So they need to take these readings from around the world and often average them out. Using these indicators, uh, the WMO are able to monitor the key components of the climate system and describe the most relevant changes in the composition of the atmosphere, the heat that arises from the accumulation of greenhouse gases, as well as other factors, and the response of the land, ocean, and ice to the changing climate. Now, the report is uh, huge and very detailed. It's 52 pages long. Fortunately, they've published a page of highlights for us, so we don't need to go through that 52 pages. Should we go through the manner? Sure, I'm interested. All right. So concentration of the three major greenhouse gases, that's carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide, continued to increase despite the restrictions around COVID-19 worldwide. Uh, in addition to that, 2020 was one of the three warmest years on record. And just to provide some context, the past six years, including last year, have been the six warmest years on record. So that's uh, not a good trend over a, a significant period of time now. Hmm. Sea level rise has continued to accelerate. So it's not only continued to rise, but the amount that it's rising is increasing. And ocean heat storage and acidification are also increasing, which is bad in a couple of ways. But in particular, it reduces the ability of the ocean to absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. In the Arctic, the uh, minimum sea ice extent, so the, the smallest area of sea ice that was recorded in September was the second lowest on record. In the Antarctic, the mass of ice lost accelerated or continued to accelerate. And to put that in perspective, Antarctica loses approximately these days between 175 and 225 gigatons of ice per year. A giga is a thousand, thousand, thousand tons, uh, a billion tons. So between 175 and 225 billion tons of ice was lost from Antarctica last year. The 2020 North Atlantic hurricane season was exceptionally active, which of course resulted in billions of dollars of damage and economic losses and many, many deaths quite significantly. And this is something that I think doesn't go as widely reported as it ought to. Around 9.8 million people were displaced due to uh, hydrometeorological disasters and hazards during just the first half of last year. So while well, James, you're sharing with us not exactly comforting news about the climate, reading all of this and these facts and statistics in the report, how do you feel? I mean, it is quite terrifying. I mean, I can't even conceive of a single gigaton of ice in terms of what that means, what that would look like. And Antarctica loses hundreds of these a year. 9.8 million dis people displaced due to climate disasters or climate hazards is a huge number of people. I mean, it's twice the number of people that live in New Zealand have been displaced in the last, in the first half of 2020. Yeah. 
Okay, the the remarkable figures that are so significant that they kind of overwhelm at least my ability to to imagine what what they represent. It's interesting to me because in the in the earlier news segment about polluter elites, we talked about how studies communicate and how, and how that makes people feel. And 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 hence I asked you the question of how you feel when you read this report. And I think it's interesting. I think most people w- will react to this and think, "Oh my god, you know, this is crazy. There's no hope. It's a state of emergency," which I think is exactly what it, reports like this aim to do. They want to shake people awake and say, "Hey, listen, we have a problem. We need to do something now. This is urgent." But I wonder, does a report like this give you that sort of sense of, I have to act now, or does it almost paralyze you? Yeah, and I think that's a really good question. I I think that you're right in that, I mean, that all true statistics, but published in this way and is supposed to be shocking and supposed to be jarring. Uh, And I think what it should do for people is highlight the, the need for action on not only an individual scale, but on an international scale. And I think that the timing of this report coming before a, a kind of quite significant international summit on climate targets is important to keep in mind. The fact that COP26 is coming up at the end of the year should be not necessarily a source of comfort, but it should... Prepare people to think about what can be done about these issues. Yeah, absolutely. It should reinforce the importance of these issues in the lead up to COP where hopefully given the next six months you can enough pressure can be applied to governments and leaders around the world that we do see some significant action between now and then or as a result of COP26. Mm. I mean it should be said that the report itself is not fear-mongering it does say that It's important to act now and that we need to act now, but it does reassure readers that with significant action, and I believe what they say is they ask governments to commit to reducing emissions by 45% by 2035, which if they can commit to that, then we're far more likely to hit the target of 1.5 degrees worth of uh, heating rather than approaching two. Yeah, I'm really glad you shared that with us and, and that this this report has also included this spark of hope. I think you mentioned hope earlier when you were talking, and I think this is really crucial that despite these, you call them jarring, these critical figures that we're confronted with and this need and this call for action, that there is hope, that there is something that can be done, that we can be proactive. I think that's really important to highlight here. And and going back to, to the mentioning of my blog post where I was expressing this sort of hope about COVID being a way for people to deal with climate change. Again, I, I'm not trying to be naive here, but I'm trying to see the, the positive in a, in a lot of negative and do hope and do think that we can extract a lot of information of how to deal with climate in the future from what we've learned in the past year, even if COVID itself did not contribute to reducing emissions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've seen throughout the the significant restrictions that uh, collective action is, is possible. And if we begin to take the climate crisis as seriously as we took the COVID crisis, then yeah, there there absolutely is hope for a a future that is not necessarily 
as bad as some of these figures would uh, lead us to to suggest. Yeah. And in that vein, I think it's really exciting to have today's guest on because I think he can tell us more about how different energy solutions can be a source of hope and can be a way to proactively move into the future of sustainable energy and climate. Absolutely. I couldn't have done a better segue myself. Let's get into that interview with Professor John Irvine. Joining us today is a guest who, although he operates in the field of science, and in particular chemistry, has a remarkably broad sphere of involvement and interests in energy. Professor John Irvine. Professor Irvine is a world-leading contributor to the science of energy materials, based at the University of St Andrews, where he has been since 1999. His research has ranged from detailed fundamental science to strategic and applied science, and has had a major impact across academia, industry and government. Professor Irvine's approach is highly interdisciplinary, extending from chemistry and materials through physics, bioenergy, geoscience, engineering, economics and policy. To match this, his research group also has a broad focus, from ionic conductors through to fuel cells, batteries, photocatalysts and bioenergy. Professor Irvine has described his role as, start quote, translating science into useful engineering and application, end quote. So we are excited to have him with us today, sharing and translating energy science for us. Hello, John, and thank you for agreeing to be on our podcast. Okay, thank you for inviting me. Of course, of course. Uh, So I guess the first question is, uh, how did you get into working in the field of energy? I have no idea. I, I, I've been working in energy since I was an undergraduate. So it seems, it's always seemed really important. And when I started, there was an oil crisis and we needed alternative energy. It's, it's just moved on from there. So it, it seems just the right area for my sort of chemistry and my research activities. You mentioned the oil crisis when you started. Would you describe the current energy atmosphere also as a crisis, or how would you describe the current energy environment? A crisis is a good word. My PhD was on the photoelectric chemical conversion of carbon dioxide into fuels. So I've been at this a long time, but people have been doing this for 100 years, actually. just haven't noticed it. It it being? Reducing carbon dioxide emissions, trying to prevent global warming. studies a hundred years ago that predicted that the earth would heat up like a furnace because we're burning so much coal. And why do you think it has taken people so long to to realize this? Cheap energy, um, laziness. I guess I was brought up in the hippie generation, so people a little bit older than me were um, certainly living the, the, the green life and then still are. Society has not really picked up. Industry has not picked up and commerce I struggled. I mean, we're in a society that wastes a lot of energy, misses a lot of value, really. So, so it's, I think society is, is to blame. And everybody wants to have more than the previous generation. So since your PhD then, what changes have you noticed in the energy sector? Well, as you say, we, we now accept that things have to be done. So uh, just because something is, is really cheap, like, like natural gas or, or coal, doesn't mean that that's no longer, it has to be accepted. In the past, it was always at the lowest cost. That was what's going to save jobs. And and, and actually, that's not 
not actually the best for the economy anyway. Sometimes producing energy locally using renewables creates a lot more economic benefit than, than doing it centrally. Because the fossil fuel industry is, is very localized. It creates a few job, a few very well-paid jobs, whereas renewables offers the opportunity to have lots of jobs. and It needs more people to deliver it. So rather than a financial bottom line, do you think people are, are more concerned with the, the overall cost of, of energy these days? Certainly the overall cost, but, but in the end, financial is a financial prop issue as well, because if, if we can't produce food, we have major problems. There are so many reasons not to have a clean environment mm. and to look, af- look after the earth. I mean, sometimes the, only, the quickest way to count things is in cost. So if you start counting the cost of carbon properly and, and don't look at um, hidden government subsidies, uh, economics and, and, um, and science and social science, uh, they all come to the same conclusion that, that we have to find alternative ways that don't make as much mess in, in, in the earth and actually try and improve things. Some of the people that I've worked with in my research um, were uh, people working in renewables, so on the corporate side of renewables, and they often made the argument that they think renewables are just as competitive as, for example, oil and gas. But the one thing that they did point out was that renewables too had limitations in terms of impacts on the environment and in terms of their availability. From your personal experience and your research, what are the sort of uh, pros and cons and the limitations of the of the renewables that you've been working on? Coming back a little bit to politics, well, well, when I started being a young academic, the Atomic Energy Authority was in charge of the renewables research in the UK. Oh, really? So, um, right. and indeed, lithium-ion batteries were patented through work with the Atomic Energy Authority. So, the people who were driving green energy were not that green. I mean, you can argue about how green nuclear is. Um, I'm not sure it's terrifically green. But um, th- there hasn't been the support for renewables, and th- that's why it's taken so long to catch up. As you say, electricity generated by offshore wind is now cheaper than coal, and it's a matter of scale. So much of, of energy is decentralized, so you, you don't have such large scales, uh, not, not like oil and gas scales. Uh, and then you have to um, you know, store energy and, and um, provide energy when, when the wind's not blowing or when the sun's not shining. So, so that there, are, there are big challenges in continuity, but the more renewables we do, do the, the lower the cost. Solar energy is phenomenally cheap. It's decreased 100 times in cost per kilowatt in, in the last 10 years. And, and some of that is due to using coal from, from China uh, to make the production of solar cells much easier. But, but also... What people don't realize is that the tolerance of purity was reduced. So the silicon that you use in solar cells doesn't have to be quite as pure as people thought. And that's immediately enabled a lot of cheapening. And then we can afford to have solar cells on, on lots of houses. And there's so much solar energy out there, it's, it's making an impact already. And you wouldn't believe that in the UK from 10 years ago. In a place where it's raining, you wouldn't expect solar energy to really work. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, but it's at a, at a nice angle. It's actually not quite as bad as people think. It's, it's, um, the solar cells don't get too hot mm-hmm. because they become less efficient when they're hot. So you, you can actually get more energy from the solar cells from what sunshine you do get. Can you explain why that is the case? Why is it that um, solar cells are more efficient if it's not as hot? 
the semiconductors start to lose lose energy, become inefficient when they, when they, they heat up. So the the the, the p-n junctions in the, in the semiconductors only work over a certain temperature range. And once you get up to thirty or forty or fifty degrees centigrade, you start to lose lose efficiency. So that means you can't really have these huge solar power plants in the desert, for example. You still have, but they're not. But there's so much sunlight that, that they work. Okay. But you could design new solar cells, cells that work at higher, work at higher temperatures, especially in batteries. One finds in the desert that you get you know, if it's forty degrees outside, it can easily be 50, 60, 70 degrees centigrade where the batteries are sitting, and, and then they become much less effective or, or even dangerous in some cases. Dangerous in the in in what sense? Uh, explosion type senses. So, so yeah, you, you've got got to be careful. Since we've been speaking about batteries, and batteries seems to be a topic that uh, media and academia has picked up, can you tell us a bit a bit more about that? And um, you know, a lot of people say, oh, the problem is like you said before, John, storage. So how can we solve battery storage? Do you have suggestions based on your work on that? So it depends how long how long you want to store energy for. So if you want to store for a few hours or a day, batteries are really good. If you want to store for weeks, you've got chemical storage. So so that's when hydrogen comes in. So it's a bit less efficient on, on the overall cycle. But if, if you want to store a lot of energy or you want to um, you want to store it for a long time, then hydrogen becomes much more effective. So um, batteries for electric vehicles in towns are, are, are definitely the way way forward as long as we can charge them the grid is perhaps more of an issue than the batteries because if you're charging fast you're, you're taking maybe a megawatt and most households are, are rated at, at tens of kilowatts so a very fast charge takes a lot of power for a very short time and, it, and it's quite hard for the grid to, to cope with that so in terms of hydrogen then as a as a mechanism of storage is that hydrogen to be consumed at, at a at a boiler, or how how would you then extract that energy that's been stored as hydrogen? The least valuable way of using hydrogen is to burn it. So, if you use hydrogen as a fuel for a, for a bus or a, or a lorry or a, or, a, or a train, it's worth ten times as much um, in economic value. So, the first thing you do with hydrogen is drive heavy vehicles. Um, so we're helping uh, the Scottish government deliver uh, a demonstration train for COP26. Trains are, are a pretty good way, way of using hydrogen, especially in, in the highlands or places where you don't have overhead cables. So it, it, you need too many, too many batteries to, to, drive, to drive a train up to, up to Inverness or from Inverness to, to Thurso. So you use hydrogen as in a fuel cell to produce electricity to drive, to drive, drive trains. So that would be the first choice. And, and then for... You know, larger vans and such things, maybe longer distance cars, uh, and then what hydrogen is left over, you, you could put into the gas grid and, and use it to expand the, the natural gas and reduce carbon emissions. But I think the, the first thing to do with the hydrogen is, is use it in its most valuable sense, and that, that that's for transport, I would say. Could you tell us a little bit more about what fuel cells exactly are, and hydrogen fuel cells in particular? Fuel, fuel cells are, are like a battery. So a battery converts chemical to electrochemical energy. Uh, in the battery, the energy is stored within the battery. So the chemicals are within the battery. In a fuel cell, the, the, the hydrogen or natural gas or carbon, whatever, whatever fuel you use, is stored externally. 
Uh, you, if you want to extend the distance that you travel, you, you just have a bigger tank for the hydrogen. Uh, if you want to extend the distance with, with a battery, you, you have to have more batteries. And then how does one store this hydrogen, which, I mean, fa- famously had problems historically with the storage and use of hydrogen, uh, especially in uh, inflatables. So how does one get over the problem of the combustibility? Well, the Hindenburg was not actually the hydrogen that got fired. It was the cloth. And, 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 the, and the worst balloon accident was actually with a helium balloon. But it, it is dangerous. It's different to petrol, but just um, but very similar danger, danger to petrol. So it depends how you manage it. Uh, the dangerous thing is that people are, are not well trained. Or, so we need lots and lots of technicians who understand hydrogen and batteries. That's one of the really big challenges is training at college level and getting like, like corgi level plumbers, for example, that, that sort of level of skills to, 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 make, to make these things happen. Hydrogen does have an issue with storage, I would say. It's, it's not as energy dense as gasoline. It's, it's, it's a lot less dense than, than, than diesel or petrol. So it's very good if you use it centrally, say for a bus station or for trains where you produce the hydrogen locally and don't move it. Uh, you can store it in high pressure cylinders or possibly as a metal. So, so that, that's a, a big challenge. A lot of us are very excited about the possibility of using ammonia. So you convert reactive hydrogen and nitrogen together to produce ammonia. And that's a very widely used chemical process at the moment, but it's very CO2 intensive because it uses natural gas. The government today was saying that we had to have marine transport being decarbonized as quickly as possible in the UK. You can't redo really that with hydrogen because the, for long distance shipping, you need, you need more, more energy than hydrogen can store. If you can convert the hydrogen to ammonia, then, then you've got a solution for um, maritime transport. So hydrogen can be carried on chemicals. I think that that's, that's the best solution. And you can get, I think, 18% mass of ammonia is hydrogen. And, and that, that's really as good as you can get. Yeah, I guess with these renewables, it's also an issue of uh, public perceptions. When I was doing research in Norway, I was out kayaking one day with one of the people I was doing research with, and we heard a big bang. And it turns out that a hydrogen fuel station exploded. And that has deterred people until today from hydrogen cars. And actually, the the company that was producing the or that had these fuel stations has now been fined and some car importers have also stopped car hydrogen car imports to Norway. There hasn't been a lot of hydrogen accidents in the last three or four years. I, I think there's been three or four and that Norwegian one is one. There's one in California and one in Korea. Certainly the one in Korea was people being encouraged to use hydrogen who weren't well experienced and, and they made mistakes of, of not switching off at night and letting hydrogen and oxygen mix. So it's when you have hydrogen and oxygen mixing that, that you have problems. Uh, there were some engineering problems in, in Norway and California, but that, that was careless engineering. Um, so one has to be very careful. And it's really important for those of us in the hydrogen community that, that safety is always always paramount. If hydrogen escapes, it's perfectly safe. It's when you contain it and capture it and let, let it mix with air that, that it becomes risky. Um, but to relax our listeners, you could say that with the right management in the future, there can be a way of dealing with it in a customer, user-friendly way. Yeah, there's lots and lots of hydrogen out there going around the country, and especially as ammonia. It's in the top five chemicals in the world, and it's moved all over the place at present and on the farms, and there really aren't, aren't, aren't that many serious risks. <laughs> Good to know. 
Perhaps you could also tell us a little bit about how hydrogen is produced. Well, now we can get a little bit racist. Um, oh. <laughs> I'm very concerned about the colour of my hydrogen. Mm -hmm. so, so green hydrogen is from electrolysis, electrochemically, like running a fuel cell in reverse. So converting steam, steam, steam to hydrogen. Blue hydrogen is from natural gas. You have to take all the carbon dioxide out, put it underground, or put it under the sea. My concern is that's very expensive. And my bigger concern is that the government will not fund that, and we end up doing it partially. So you end up producing more CO2 than you would if you use the natural gas. That's the colour I, I don't like particularly. Brown hydrogen is, is just where you produce lots of CO2. So you form methane with steam to produce lots of carbon dioxide. In. Um, and you can have purple hydrogen, which is from nuclear. And there's actually turquoise as well, which produces carbon black and hydrogen from, from, from methane. Turquoise I like because uh, a Japanese colleague told me many years ago that uh, if you crack hydrogen, crack methane to produce hydrogen, you can take the carbon and you can put it back down the coal mines for our grandchildren. And solid carbon is not going to cause any problems. Um, but, but CO2 is, is something we have to do everything we can to minimize. So you mentioned carbon capture and storage. Do you have any particular views on, on that? I mean, you mentioned the cost and that you think that would be very expensive. But what about the sort of long-term impact of doing that? If it's what we need to do as last resort, then it's, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with it. It's so expensive that it makes all the technologies difficult. So we could be producing green hydrogen or, or improving the electrolysis with the funding that, that goes to, to have carbon capture. Um, carbon utilisation is something different where you take the, the CO2 and you convert it into chemicals. Um, so you don't emit the CO2, but you actually use the CO2, maybe to produce synthetic fuels. So, so that's a carbon neutral kind of technology. I prefer utilising the carbon than, than, than to capturing and storing it. But lots of people disagree with me especially in government. They're worried about jo jobs in the oil industry. And mm. uh, I think there's a lot of things people in the oil industry can do in, in hydrogen, especially if we have green hydrogen. What's really inspiring this year is, is a lot of the offshore companies are taking green hydrogen very seriously. So looking at um, floating offshore wind farms in the Cromarty Firth. And a lot of the big oil and gas companies are, are really moving towards hydrogen. So, so that, that is really encouraging. Yeah, it's interesting. I think mostly we hear about carbon capture and storage and we don't hear a lot about carbon neutralization. So I'm glad you brought that up. There is a cement factory in Dunbar, so in Lothian, across the fourth. Mm -hmm. the, the, the CO2 emitted from cement is 9% of global CO2 emissions. If you could convert that CO2 into, into, into plastics or synthetic fuels, that would be a, a massive way of using, using carbon dioxide. And it, doesn't, it doesn't have to come from, from fossil fuel. A lot of the CO2 comes from the limestone. So there's lots of offshore wind nearby as well. So I'd love to see that, that, that happen on a big scale. Is this something you, that you're working on, using uh, carbon to produce materials? Yeah, we work on CO2 electrolysis. So you can electrolyze CO2 the same way as you can electrolyze uh, steam. So you can produce carbon monoxide, which with hydrogen gives you synthesis gas, and then you can produce plastics or um, uh, even petrol. Yeah. I, I'm interested in, uh, I mean, a lot of the times we've been talking about here, reducing the the use of fossil fuels or the, the burning of fossil fuels in, in particular. And I wondered what 
you saw as the future of fossil fuels are we ever going to be able to get away from that i mean there are some industries i'm thinking particularly of steel where uh it's it's almost seems like it's a necessity at this stage there is a european demonstration project using hydrogen to produce steel so you don't need to use coal to produce produce steel um but you need a lot of hydrogen and then it's the scale is is, is the challenge yeah. it's a huge amount of energy the amount of energy you put into a car if you refuel it with petrol you know, per, per, per minute is, is massive it's a lot of energy that, that you have to, to map that's a lot of electrons from, from renewables it goes back to the very start of this discussion when we we're saying why has so little changed and it just seems that fossil fuels with this perfect, com- well, not quite perfect combination of portable, storable, uh, high energy, uh, or high with a high energy yield, that we needed something significant to push us away from it. Hydrogen is an energy vector, and if you were to pick the perfect energy vector, it would be diesel because it's got that, that huge energy density, and it's very easy to, to liquefy. It's a liquid, so it's very easy to move around. So it's a tough. Tough competition. We talk about carbon zero, and actually, we need to do better than that. So we actually need to start removing carbon from the atmosphere, or and go carbon negative. Especially in a country like the UK, where we've got a long history of producing carbon. If we planted more trees, that would be a good start. So you've got to start thinking about was that point you make an electric vehicle. It's still over its lifetime, it's probably 20% of its energy is, is from C, is producing CO2. So even though it's uh, elect, um, an electric vehicle, there's a lot of CO2 goes into producing it. So does that mean that the future that you want to see is one where fossil fuels aren't used at all? I think so. I think that's where we have to go to. Yeah, unless we can, well, maybe sequestration or, or converting fossil fuel into coal, but We've got a lot of CO2 to stop producing. And um, the other thing that's really bad is methane. So, uh, you know, in the shorter, short term, methane is, is a more rapid global emitter than, than CO2. But when we're talking about 100 years hence, CO2 is much, much worse than methane. When you start talking about 15, 20 years, because the lifetime of methane is shorter, it, it becomes more significant. So a lot of the fossil fuels that we produce release me- uh, methane when we're producing them. So uh, shale gas is a really good example. There's a lot of methane that, that escapes when we when we drill shale gas, and, and because of the nature of the wells, so it's, and there's a lot of CO, a lot of methane coming out of gas pipelines that can be can be captured. But one really concerning thing is what happens when uh, the Tega and Siberia melt starts to warm up, and the, the tundra starts to melt as well, and it starts to the permafrost starts to, to melt, and that releases a lot of methane. That's a, a self-accelerating process, and once once that tipping point is hit, then global warming is likely to increase very rapidly. I'm really glad that you brought this up, um, that you brought methane up, because I think generally speaking in the media and also in academia, there is a great focus now on carbon. Um, and we've moved from calling it greenhouse gas emissions to mostly referring to carbon emissions. So I'm glad you pointed out um, the methane as well. My wife's a farmer, so I feel that to some extent cows are a bit innocent. I mean, it, it depends on how you do the farming. And, and, and there's obviously it can be hugely improved to stop feedlots lots and, you know, and manage the carbon 
as an ecosystem. Ruminants are not as evil as, as, as the BBC seems to think. Uh, so I was wondering if there were any techniques. We've, we've mentioned CO2 sequestration. We've mentioned the conversion into to plastics. Is there any similar or equivalent for methane? You can, well, you can use methane to produce chemicals. That's, that's for sure. But you have to start changing the chemistry so as you don't emit CO2. Because processes have been done in the cheapest possible way. Sassel used to be in St Andrews, specialised in producing diesel over many years. Uh, they started off from coal, they moved to natural gas, so that they, they used the methane that way. But I don't think you want to produce methane in the atmosphere. It's just it's, it's something that we want to keep keep down and just look at the uh, anthropogenic methane production and, and, and re try and control that and probably even me- and measure it. I think because I think a lot of the, the methane that's released from drilling for oil or d- drilling for gas is, is just not known about. And, and there are satellite images that show there's immense amounts of methane released when we, we drill fossil fuels. That's really interesting. Why do you think that's the case? Why do you think there's less focus on methane? Is it because it has that shorter term effect over carbon, which has a long term effect? I think that was originally the, the case. And CO2 is, is a stronger global warming gas. Mm. And, and its concentration is increasing in the atmosphere. We, we can see that. When I was doing research, I spoke to someone who was pointing out that he thinks the problem is not only the greenhouse gases that go into the atmosphere, but that because there's more CO2 and other gases in the atmosphere, that means oxygen levels are also reduced. Is that true? And is that a problem? I have been known to set a question looking at CO2 sequestration. So if you convert methane into CO2 and hydrogen and you sequester the CO2, you're actually taking oxygen out of the atmosphere. And you can start to count how many years that will, that will be to take the, to deplete the oxygen content of the atmosphere. And, and it works out it's probably not too bad, but it's not very far off being significant. And, and it's a very important question, which, and, and you know, perhaps we're not including everything in, in the question, in the calculations, so we need to be careful. So the best carbon capture technology right now is still planting forests? I like trees. I'm like, <laughs> um, also improving the soils. Because I think our, our soils are very carbon empty. And, and speaking to you know, agriculturists, there's a, a lot of room for, for more carbon in soils. How do you do that? By managing the farming. Um, this is where ruminants come in very well. They, they're very good at their manure, is very good for building up so, soil quality. But, but also, I think, how you manage arable farming. So, in the past, we've tended to have more monocultures and you know, get rid of all the weeds the, the the fungi and the creepy crawlies that there's a lot of carbon there you know every every cubic meter of soil has a, has a lot of potential for have a lot more carbon so that means not only planting trees but also preventing more trees to be cut, cut down for other industrial processes i think managing forests as well in, in the u.s there's a lot of forests that are kind of dead so they're not growing anymore there's, there's trees dying as quickly as, as new ones are growing so if you start using timber for building, that that's you know, and, and managing the forestry, that take a lot more CO two. Yeah, it sounds like your approach to this, to energy and to the climate, is a very holistic approach. Yeah, I think it has to be because if, if you just take a small piece of the jigsaw, you, you you can get the wrong answer. We we mentioned at the the start how widely involved you've been in in various areas. Do you, do you think that that's exactly why is because you this question that you've sought to answer throughout your entire academic career is so involved i think moving around is, is quite is quite good because i'm not going to live in politics in the end but if, if we can help change some minds it's good
government now believes in hydrogen. Ten years ago, they didn't. Um, ammonia as a, as a fuel for tra for transport or is now very much in vogue. Uh, UK government, Scottish government are, are talking about this, whereas 10, 15 years ago, they, they didn't see it. It doesn't matter who's doing it. If it's, if it's being done, it's, it's a lot better than, than not being done. What do you think will be the next thing you, you mentioned? Hydrogen hasn't been uh, as embraced 10 years ago as it is today. Is there something that's sort of groundbreaking right now that's being developed that might be a new solution that everyone will be talking about in 10 or 15 years? Just translating renewables is, is, a, is a really big thing and, and, and building the holistic approach. So bringing in transport and, and heat and chemicals and electricity altogether. So, so I think there's a lot of things to, to finish. As a chemist, I know you work with a lot of rare earth elements, and the idea of or the idea of green hydrogen and the the focus on that is is wonderful. And I think should be should be pushed. How careful do we also need to be of the other side of that, the the where the components are coming from, how recyclable they are, and and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, in batteries, there's a lot of issues. Um, we worry about cobalt mining and ethics of that because it's 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 it may even be child, child labor producing cobalt in the batteries but also there's a lot of damage to the land as well and that, that causes a lot of environmental damage so ideally iron they know this are the top 10 elements in the crust so what you want to use so iron silicon calcium sodium so we're working on sodium batteries and it's much more available than lithium but but also that uh, they work with more sustainable elements so in, in terms of chemistry and, and geology, sustainability of, of elements is really important. Things like phosphates are what's called a critical element. And phosphorus is very com common in the crust, but we use so much phosphate in agriculture that, that we're likely to run out in, in 20 or 30 years. And they're talking about peak phosphate coming fairly soon. So that, that affects food production as well. And the way to address that is to start capturing phosphorus from sewage treatment works to start using waste as a resource and that's probably the, the, the last arm of renewables that we want to look at. Um, we have a lot of waste, waste energy, even waste plastics that we could use to produce, produce energy or chemicals. You said in the beginning that you would define the current energy situation as a crisis but from what you've just said and what you've told us in this discussion um, it could also be defined as an era of peaks where we're running out of all those things that we've been using too much and not in sustainable ways, it seems. Yeah, and I, this rise and fall just should, isn't, a, isn't a sustainable way to look at things. So, And I, and I guess that's one thing that worries me about CO2 sequestration is you, you've got this instinct that you're getting rid of the CO2 and, 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 not, and then worrying about the problem that might come, come back in 50, 100 years' time. Maybe there's no problem, but I'm I, I just not, not always nervous that, that, that by doing something that, that just postpones a problem is, is, not, is not the way forward. We've done that for so many years. It's, it's time to live for, for more holistic and solutions that, that will work for a long time in the future. I totally agree with you. I think one of the problems in the way we've been dealing with energy is that it's been very short-sighted and we've thought about immediate gains rather than long-term consequences. So I, I totally agree that the way we are using energy now and the kind of plans we make, even for renewables, have to be mindful of the impacts, social impacts and environmental impacts that will, will be there in the future. There's a really stark example, and that, that is bioethanol. It's, it's a really nice 
fuel, it's you can add it to diesel, it's it saves a lot of carbon. And you can if you produce it from waste or do it in the right way, it's really good. But um one of the Bush presidents decided it was a way to subsidize farmers, corn corn farmers. So there was a lot of bioethanol plants put up in, in the US and it meant that it was much more economic to produce corn for bioethanol. So they end up start people starving in Mexico because the, the maize was going to produce bio, um, bioethanol in, in the US. From transforming corn into bioethanol is actually energy negative. If you do it with, as they do in Brazil, with, with um, sugarcane or, or biogas that waste from sugarcane, or even in the UK as we do it with heat, with, with wheat, which has got much higher dry matter, it, it is actually energy beneficial. But maize or, or corn is, is the same in the US. It's probably energy negative to produce biofuel. So you have this immense impact on the society and people go starving because you're producing this renewable fuel. And it was actually the wrong fuel. But it, it was good subsidy for American farmers in the Midwest. Probably got, probably got a few votes, I guess. I mean, that, that kind, of, kind of brings up the idea of, of government and policy. How, how important is the governmental support for the work that you're doing in the um, finding the solution to the current climate crisis? A lot of people might realise that at the moment the government has dramatically reduced research funding. So it's probably 30-40% reduction in, in baseline funding at the moment. If, I'm not sure they're going to fix that, but they're promising so much. But the European budget has been is continuing, but it's coming out of the baseline funding. Um, the overseas aid, as everybody knows, has been cut. So... so there's two major strands of research funding that has disappeared. To some extent, we're lucky in that, that the one thing they're likely to fund is, is energy, but it's not in a, in a very positive sense. But there's a, a lot, a need for a lot, lot more funding and, and demonst- demonstration. But in terms of government interacting with, with technologies and getting subsidies, it needs to be very carefully measured. It, it's quite a challenge. I think the solar solar subsidies. Were a bit too high to start with, uh, and then, then they dropped off very quickly, so the industry kind of, kind of collapsed. Uh, small-scale wind had a very, very high subsidy and, and then went to nothing. And what happened was companies made windmills um, so that you could pay back the you could pay back your what you paid them in seven years. So the price of the windmill was how much you'd get from subsidy in seven years. So feast and famine again. So, so you get lots of people started, which is probably a good thing. But then you don't sustain it, and then you can look. certainly micro wind has been lost, and you don't have many people from small windows on on, on, the, on the on the farms or houses. So, so government has a big challenge, but it's really important, and it's not so much the how big the amounts are; it's it's how, how long planned, how well planned, and how, how careful they are about how they implement it. Yeah, I mean, everything we do is important. It's this, you know, every little bit helps. And I think we need to do it more quickly than I'm not planning for 2035. We've got to do things now. What do you think the, uh, that, that's something that I think we, we often speak about the big things and the big changes that need to happen. But what do you think the individual can do? People that listen to this podcast, what can they do? Something that isn't too painful, but that still can be impactful in their, in their sort of bubble. <laughs> I think the sort of things that we all try to do, like you know, less packaging and be less quick to buy from Amazon because they've got too many bits of plastic on on their on their kits. Um, and in terms of energy, put photovoltaics on your roof or 
think about electric cars. Um, it depends on, 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 you know, how far you travel. It's not, not always so easy in, in, in Fife. You've got long journey distances, but if, you know, if you're in a commuter, in a, in a city, you would definitely go for an electric vehicle, especially if you can charge it at home. We produce less, consume less, and just the sort of things that society are, are, are doing at the moment. And I guess speak to politicians and just, they're looking for our votes at the moment. Remind them that, uh, we need a clean climate future. But I think the important thing is trying to be holistic and not, not just doing one thing to, on its own because it, it, it might not have the, the positive effect that, that having a, a, a broader approach has. Plant a tree. That's a good one. How long is it until we're going to be able to, to step onto hydrogen trains? 2035, they'll be running in the north of Scotland. And that they'll only be hydrogen trains. So that's 14 years away. That's full implementation. Um, in September, October, you should be able to get on the hydrogen train in, in Bowness of this year. Oh, wow. So it's sooner than you think. Yeah, and it could be a, a lot sooner, a lot more than, a lot sooner than that. So 2035 is the absolute limit. Government policy is that, that that's when we'll have hydrogen. And it's, if anything, things are moving faster, not slower. And how important is the demonstration at COP26 for, for that, for you guys there? It's what's called phase two of the Scottish train projects. So phase three will be the one that runs from Inver, um, probably between Wick and Thurso, but on, on the Wick Thurso line, or the, so the Harry Potter line, so um, Inverness to Kyle Black House, Glasgow to Malig. You, you can't have overhead power lines for those. It's too expensive and it'll cost too much energy, so you need, that's where you need the hydrogen hydrogen trains. There'll be hydrogen buses in Dundee very soon as well. And there are in Aberdeen already, of course, there's 20 up there. So sooner than you think. Yeah, it has to be. We'll maybe try and get a hydrogen bus for the university. We're trying, working on that. All right. Well, John, thank you very much for joining us. I know you're, you're a busy man. And so thanks for taking your time to speak with us today. Thank you. Thanks for your interest as well. It's, it's really important. That's great. Uh, if people want to check out more about your, your research or your, the research groups that you're involved with, is there anywhere that you'd like them to go? Probably from the university, from our university website, from a group website, which I can't remember. The, <laughs> if they want to look at the hydrogen, hydrogen accelerator, go to that. You'll you either get HG Wells, War of the Worlds, or you'll get the hydrogen accelerator based out of Eden. And uh, of course, we'll link that in the, the podcast page over on the uh, Energy Ethics website for this episode. Uh, so you'll be able to head over to see all of John's work with his colleagues uh, from there. All right. Thanks again, John. Thank you. Right, thanks again, John. Cheers, man. I don't know about you, Anna, but I I really enjoyed that interview with John. Yeah, I still feel very inspired and thought provoked, as I said during the interview. There's lots of things I can now research and and integrate into my work as well. I've learned new things. Ah, oh, absolutely. I hope the, uh, the listeners have learned a thing or two as well. Of course. If you want to check out any of John's work or indeed the news articles that Anna and I spoke about at the beginning of this episode, you can head to the podcast page specific to this podcast on the Energy Ethics website. So www.energyethics.ac.uk backslash podcast for all of our podcast pages up there. Uh, Anna, do you have anything that you're working on at the moment? 
Yeah, I'm working on an article manuscript that should be published about um, energy elites and changes that they shaped in the energy industry. It should be open access, so people should be able to read it if they're interested to hear anthropological academic work. I'm also currently working on continuing my blog series, Making Energy. And uh, the next post will be about how people in their homes generate electricity and heat. So that should be quite interesting. You'll get an insight into how it is like to live on a Greek Mediterranean island. Of course, you can find that in all the other blog posts from the research team, as well as guest contributors over on the Energy blog, again on the Center for Energy Ethics website. When's your next blog post likely to be out there, Anna? I think within the next two weeks. Well, fingers crossed, but by the time this podcast goes out, uh, it'll be just about to, to hit the press. So give everyone enough time to catch the rest of your series, as well as all the other posts up on the Energy blog on the Energy Ethics website. Of course, you can find out all the news from the center and the world of energy up there as well. You can keep in touch with all the goings on at the Center for Energy Ethics by following us on Twitter or LinkedIn. And we actually have a brand new Facebook page for this podcast. So if you'd like to talk to us about the podcast, give us your thoughts, anything like that, you can like us on Facebook and get in touch with me directly through that. Well, this has been All About Energy for another episode. Last thing to do, thank my co-host Anna for being with us once again. Thank you, James, for having me once again. Pleasure as always. So until next time, I uh, hope you hear from us soon.